Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. It's Friday, December 2nd, around 8.30 in the morning in our nation's capital. Time to gather around the roundtable to look back at the news of the week with three of our top political reporters. There's been a lot of news this week on several fronts. At the White House, President Biden welcomed President Macron of France for his first official state visit and state dinner. In Congress, Democrats and Republicans joined in passing two major pieces of legislation, blocking a railroad strike and endorsing same-sex marriage. And Democrats elected a new leadership team in the House, while Kevin McCarthy is still trying to round up 218 votes with the clock ticking. At Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump, under fire from fellow Republicans for his dinner with a white supremacist and a Holocaust denier, lost another round in court and saw his tax returns turned over to House Democrats. And in Georgia, record numbers of early voters turned out to decide whether Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker will take home the big Senate trophy on December 6th next week. And here to sort it out for all of us today, Igor Babish, senior politics reporter for HuffPost, covering the Hill. Hello, Igor. Morning, Bill. Good to have you here again. Uh, and we welcome also back Eliza Collins, politics reporter for the Wall Street Journal, also covering Congress. Hi, Eliza. Hi there. And on the front lines in Georgia, in Atlanta, for the New York Times politics reporter, Maya King. Hello, Maya. Hi, Bill. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, let's go right to the big race we're all watching in Georgia. Maya there again on the front lines. Uh, and yesterday, uh, they brought in the um, campaigner-in-chief, Barack Obama, at the last minute for Senator Warnock. Here's the former president. Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself when I was seven. Then I grew up. In case you're wondering, by the way, Mr. Walker decided he wanted to be a werewolf, which is great. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be, except for a United States Senator. So, Maya, that must be one of the highest moments of the campaign so far. Give us the, how's the, what's the state of play? What's the lay of the land in Georgia as you see it on this uh, four days before the, the vote? Yeah, so, um, you know, President Obama has long been viewed as sort of a closer in a lot of these races, especially in Georgia. And last night, I think the clip that you're playing underlines the message that Democrats have now, which is just being unafraid of laying pretty plain about the fact that Herschel Walker says a lot of really outlandish things, that he uh, appears to not necessarily know exactly what the responsibilities of being in the United States Senate are required, um, and just overall making the case that Senator Warnock, as an incumbent and as someone who understands how the Senate works, is the more qualified candidate. Today is the last day of early voting in the runoff period. So we can expect to see really long lines, as has been the case this entire week at polling places across the state, especially in these more concentrated metro Atlanta counties. Uh, over the weekend, Senator Warnock and, uh, and um, Herschel Walker will be crisscrossing the state one last time. Warnock's campaign strategy has long been to drive up turnout among the base and bringing back out the same people who voted on November 8th. But he's also now trying to cut into 
Herschel Walker's gains or his support with some of these soft conservatives who may have held their nose and voted for him once, but not necessarily are, but aren't not feeling uh, motivated to turn back out for him again. Senator Warnock wants those people to turn back out, but actually to vote uh, for him this time. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of different demographic plays at work here, but you know, it's going to come entirely down to turnout. And while the momentum certainly seems to be on the side of Senator Warnock, no one in this state can call this for anybody right now. Um, a likely scenario is there. So there are many different scenarios. Yeah. By the way, I did see CNN poll this morning shows Warnock up fifty two forty eight again within the margin of error there uh, at this at this time. Uh, Maya, I want to ask you. Yesterday, um, the front page article in the New York Times saying that uh, Walker sort of threw a wrench into things by taking five days off over Thanksgiving holiday and not campaigning? That's right. Last week was seen as a pretty crucial uh, campaign window because everybody's home and because folks are kind of glued to their TVs and they're around. Saturday voting was secured last Saturday. There were a number of reasons to uh, pound the pavement, as it were. But while Senator Warnock was all over the state and campaigning and sort of taking advantage of this window, Herschel Walker was nowhere to be found. There were no public events from Tuesday to Sunday. Um, and so I called a lot of Republicans in the state to kind of ask, you know, you have stood by Herschel Walker through the abortion allegations, through the lies, through all of the negative press that he's gotten up to this point. And now at this moment where you really need him to shine, he's actually completely off the map. And a lot of people were actually unafraid at this point to say, yeah, this is really concerning to us because we ever, everyone has recognized at this point it's a very close race. You can't take any voters for granted. And Walker, someone who does have a lot of flaws, really, uh, according to a number of conservatives I talked to, should have spent that time actually appealing to all these conservative voters who have genuine mm-hmm. concerns about his candidacy. But again, he wasn't there. Uh, so now these last few days are just all the more crucial, but it's been a lot more difficult for him to overcome that um, while also just not being out front. So Igor, I'm a little uh, curious about the fact that I haven't seen more open support for Herschel Walker among Senate Republicans. Yeah, Lindsey Graham just did a new ad for him and Ted Cruz was down there, but I haven't seen much from Mitch McConnell or anybody else. What are you picking up on the Hill? Have they kind of given up on this race? Um, I don't. I wouldn't say that they've given up on the race, but they've um, they, they've lost definitely a little bit of urgency over it, given that Senate control is is no longer up in the air. Democrats will um, keep their control going into next year. So the the Walker race um, is not as not quite as top priority now as it was um, before the election. But you know, you've still got people like Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham and Rick Scott going down there to help him out, try to hold his hand, so to say, um, <laughs> to get him across the finish line. You see them on TV all the time on, on, on Fox, leading some people to speculate that that maybe they have ulterior motives, uh, you know, to try to burnish their reputation uh, on national television. Um, but, you know, it's it's uh, there's still a couple of Republican senators involved. So, uh, Eliza, even though control of the Senate is not at question, this is still a pretty important for Democrats to pick up this seat. I mean, it would make a difference, right? Absolutely. Well, first of all, it would be six years. You know, Georgia was a red state. Right. So just for the having a Democrat in this position, they have um, John Ossoff, who had also won last cycle. So he has four more years. So beyond that. But then also right now, the Senate is split 50-50. Democrats have the majority because they have the White House. And um, the vice president can act as a tie-breaking vote. If they can get 51 votes, they have a little bit more cushion. We've seen the last two years, Democrats have actually been able to do quite a bit, given how narrow their majority is. But every single senator matters. We've talked a lot about Joe Manchin on here, about Kirsten Sinema. So those senators would not have as much power. Um, They'd still have quite a lot, but they wouldn't have as much. And it would also give 
senators going into tough races in 2024, a little bit more wiggle room. Manchin is up again. Cinema is up again. John Tester in Montana is up. So senators who come from red or purple states who might need to break with their party on certain things, uh-huh. one of them mm-hmm. could do so. Um, and so it just, for Democrats, it matters more, but exactly to Igor's point, Republicans they would like the seat, of course, but it's not deciding control for them. Uh, and also, Democrats would be able to have one more uh, extra seat on every committee, correct? Right? They don't have to yes, be split yes. 50-50. Right. Right. So it, right now, they're able to have chairmanships, but the committees are split. So getting that extra seat is really critical to being able to vote things out of committee um, with out any Republican support, Democrats would then have the majority on committees rather than having committees get deadlocked. So the other big race soon to be decided, uh, a little different in that this guy so far doesn't really have anybody running against him, but he still doesn't have enough votes to win. Of course, we're talking about Kevin McCarthy, who is dying to be uh, the new Speaker of the House. He yesterday said he's confident he's going to get there. Here he is. I believe we'll get to 218. Why? Because if we don't, none of those investigations go forward. We can't start investigating Mayorkas. The subpoenas can't move out until you elect a speaker. So we either are successful together or we will fail individually and we will not be given the possibility or the opportunity to be in the majority again. Okay, Igor, I know you've got your scorecard out. You're <laughs> updating it every day. Uh, what's the count? Well, it seems to be there a handful of uh, House conservatives who have um, said they would absolutely not vote to support Kevin McCarthy as Speaker uh, when, the, when the time comes in January for the vote. Um, so he's working with an extremely tight margin. Um, there might be as many as 10 or 20 who are also opposed to him, uh, and he's there, there's a bit of a, a smell of, of desperation in the air as he tries to coax and um, get him to get him to flip, basically to try to get himself installed as speaker. He's he's already flipped uh, his position on on uh, impeaching one of President Biden's cabinet officials, Secretary Mayorkas, uh, and he's now he's now supportive of that effort after ruling it out earlier this year. In a in a kind of in a gift to to the conservatives who have been trying to oust him, um, so who knows what else he's he's willing to uh, uh, overlook? Um, he's already said that he's going to um, give committee ships back to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, the extremely controversial uh, uh, Georgia Republican. So um, I think he's still got some work cut out uh, in front of him, uh, but for now he's maintaining that. He will go down um, and will contest this thing to the wire, and no matter how many votes on um, it takes on the floor. Well, but Eliza, if not McCarthy, who? I mean, what's Plan B? Do the those who say they won't vote for McCarthy is there another candidate? Well, that's the big question. There is not at this point. There's Congressman Andy Biggs, who is very conservative, who really has very little support. Um, who ran against McCarthy in the internal, basically the Republican conference met mm-hmm. earlier this month, or I guess earlier in November, to decide who they wanted to put forward as speaker. Biggs ran against him. He got several dozen votes compared to McCarthy, but McCarthy was selected because that was a majority vote. But on the House floor in January, McCarthy will need a majority of those present in voting. That's 218 votes. Uh, It looks like they'll have, you know, four votes to lose, and there are more than that. So Biggs right now is the person running, but he's certainly not going to peel off um, a lot of votes, and he's not going to be someone that the centrist Republicans or some of those Republicans who actually gave the majority, I'm thinking about someone like Juan Siscomani, who won in Southern Arizona. He won that Gabby Gifford seat that has flipped back and forth over the years, Um, There are several other Republicans who won competitive seats and would like someone a little bit more mainstream to lead them. So that's the big question is who they're voting for. And it's also not clear how many of these Republicans 
are movable and how many are just hard no's. Andy Biggs says he will not vote for Kevin McCarthy under any circumstances, but someone like Congressman Chip Roy in Texas, another conservative, has been a little bit looser. He's asking mm-hmm. for a whole bunch of things, um, but I'm not sure if he could ever get there. So we're watching all of this, but I'm not sure how this works out. There's nobody. <laughs> I think it's really hard to get somebody that the conservatives are comfortable with, that the centrists are also comfortable with. Now, the conservatives have been a lot better at using their numbers in the past to demand things. Um, mm-hmm. Igor and I have covered the House Freedom Caucus for years, and they made things really miserable for John Boehner and Paul Ryan. In fact, they both left. So we have not seen the centrists use their power, but they're starting to threaten to. Uh, Well, speaking of the Freedom Caucus using its power uh, and picking up on the point that Igor made, uh, Maya, here is uh, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff um, with his take on how, were he elected, Kevin McCarthy would really be beholden to the extremist, uh, extreme right wing, if you will, of his party and of his caucus. Uh, Adam Schiff uh, yesterday. He will do whatever Marjorie Taylor Greene wants him to do. Uh, He's a very weak leader of his conference, uh, meaning that uh, he will adhere to the wishes of the lowest common denominator. Uh, And if that lowest common denominator wants to remove people from committees, that's what they'll do. It's going to be chaos uh, with a Republican leadership. Uh, And in fact, Maya, what we've heard from Kevin McCarthy, he's promised is investigations of Hunter Biden, of the Justice Department, of the January 6th committee, of uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. What are we looking forward to here where he becomes speaker, Maya? (laughs) Well, not to completely agree with Adam Schiff here, but I can say that from what I've observed on the campaign trail, you notice a lot more centrist Republicans talking about the bread and butter issues that tried Uh to get them elected, you know, talking about the economy and inflation and crime. And it was really the more far-right candidates who were talking about getting the majority in order to conduct these investigations and move forward with these impeachments and underline things like Hunter Biden's laptop. And it seems now that heading into this new Congress, at least in McCarthy's view, this is that is actually what's, at, what's atop the schedule, and that's really what the priority is. But I won't say it's just because the Freedom Caucus plans to just run roughhouse over him. I think also because the margins of Republicans... Um, majority in Congress are so much more slim than they expected, that is going to give really loud caucuses like the Freedom Caucus just more um, of a platform to be able to do this. And I'll take the Georgia angle one more time and say, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene has, will prove, I think, to be uh, a quite influential voice on a lot of this, not just because of who she is um, as a valuable figure to the Republican base at this point, but it's no secret why she's still stuck by Kevin McCarthy's side. I think she sees opportunities down the road uh, to be able to flex her muscle and remind him of the role that she's probably likely to play uh, in galvanizing other members of the Freedom Caucus to go ahead and get McCarthy to 218. Yeah, probably true that if he gets it, he would not get it without Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is Uh, saying something about the state of politics today. Uh, Before we take a break, I want to ask you each um, about your take on a man that we don't really know that well, but he will be the new Democratic, he is the new Democratic leader of the House of Representatives, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who expressed um, sort of an olive branch uh, a couple of days ago saying, yeah, I want to work together, but at the same time, we'll hold our ground when necessary. Uh, Here's the new Democratic leader. We look forward to finding opportunities to partner with the other side of the aisle and work with them whenever possible. But we will also push back against extremism whenever necessary. So what's your take, Igor? Um, He got it with no opposition, which is stunning, really. How did how who is he and how did it happen? Well, you know, you could say uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn is in the house. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. uh, he is he is a, a, a Democrat from Brooklyn, and so now, you, now you've got, of course, a Democrat from Brooklyn leading Democrats in the House, and a Democrat from Brook, Brooklyn leading Democrats in the Senate. Of course, Chuck Good Schumer. Point. So it's a major uh, political uh, geographic realignment, uh, given mm-hmm. that you know Nancy Pelosi brought this tremendous power from from the other side of the country. Um, and uh, Jeffries, of course, what's very interesting about him is that he has not had a great relationship with 
Kevin McCarthy, the two have uh, publicly right. kind of yeah. sparred against each other. So I'm curious to see how this this working relationship is going to is going to um, shape out next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Eliza, you know him. You've covered him. Um, what's your take? I think first we should mention um, that he will be the first black person to lead yep. a political party in Congress. So it, it is historic. Um, it's also a complete generational shift. Pelosi, her numbers two and three, Hoyer and Clyburn were all in their 80s. Um, Jeffries is in his 50s. Catherine Clark, who will be his number two. Uh, also in her 50s, and then Pete Aguilar, the number three, will be in his 40s. So it's a huge shift for Democrats. And like you pointed out, they really they cleared the field, let those three move up. Um, it's a stark contrast to Republicans where they're, we, we don't know what's going to happen with Kevin McCarthy, as we just discussed. So I think that's really interesting. It is much easier when you're in the minority. Um, we're already seeing this on the Republican side, how it's difficult. It's much easier in the minority to keep your caucus together. So Jeffries would probably really like to be in the majority, but he probably will have an easier time uniting his caucus. Um, to Igor's point, he has no relationship with McCarthy, but he does have a relationship or has had a relationship with some rank and file Republicans. He was a keen negotiator in the first step step act which was a prison reform bill um mm-hmm. several years ago and i reached out to some republicans ahead of you know his selection and they were saying really nice things nancy mace who's a republican congresswoman in south carolina said nothing but good things to say about my ability to work with him the difference is now he's leader and he's in charge of messaging for his party and he's not just working on bills across the aisle. But it will be interesting to see sort of that contrast as someone who's been able to work across the aisle, but also has zero relationship with the person he actually will need to work across the aisle. I guess the question, Maya, is uh, no matter how competent he is, whether in that position as Democratic leader, he'll be able to get anything done in the next session of Congress. Right. And I think it gets to that question again, too, of what McCarthy is going to do or what Republicans are able to accomplish. Perhaps this is a session where he's just warming up and we'll have to see exactly, you know, what he what he's able to do. And another group that I'm looking, um, you know, for what his relationship will be is progressives, because we know that they've been a bit chilly towards him in the past and haven't really agreed with a lot of the decisions that he's made, um, most notably Ocasio-Cortez not really expressing a lot of excitement um, about his being elected to uh, to the leader of the caucus. I don't know how this might interfere with his ability to get things done in this upcoming Congress, but perhaps down the road could create some roadblocks for him. Okay, I want to congratulate us. We've gotten this far in our roundtable without even discussing Donald Trump, uh, but we'll have to get into that after the break. Plus, Uh, Congress actually got a couple of big things done this week. Let's talk about that as well with uh, today's panel, Igor Babish and Elizabeth Collins, Eliza Collins and Maya King here on the Bill Press Pod. Quick break and we'll be right back. All right, friends, I don't have to tell you that it is getting cold, uh, colder and colder in every part of the country, and the holidays are approaching. Good time uh, to think about uh, keeping yourself warm and good time to think about a great gift for yourself or someone you love. And I just want to, again, suggest you couldn't do any better than a beautiful hand-woven scarf by my wife, the real talent in the family, Carol Press. Check out our website at carolpressscarves.com for her latest selection. Great new designs, great new colors, hand-woven scarves in rayon chenille or bamboo. Each one is a work of art. And uh, Carol told me yesterday, uh, up until December 14, she can still take orders. She's at the post office mailing new scarves out every day. So you can get in line. Check out our website at carolpressscarves.com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. 
Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we're back with today's panel on today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Maya King joining us from the New York Times, Eliza Collins of Wall Street Journal, and Igor Babish from HuffPost. Uh, well, let's start out with uh, Congress in a bipartisan fashion, actually getting something done. Eliza, there'll be no railroad strike because Republicans and Democrats were uh, able to agree on that. It, it, I was surprised in the Senate, it was 80 to 15. Um, it was pretty lopsided and, and pretty big margin in the House as well. What drove this? Well, the the pending railroad strike. Um, and I think the fear of what that could do to the economy, but it was also something like a railroad strike is really interesting because of all of the different sections of the country it touches on. So I was talking to a conservative Republican from a Midwestern state who mentioned all of the grain that the state needed to ship out, whereas someone on maybe the East Coast could be more affected by the actual railroad workers. And so I think the idea of just how broadly this would affect the country made people nervous. I also think it was really interesting. We saw this vote that did fail to add paid sick leave for rail workers. But the group of people that came together to vote on this um, was really fascinating. It was sort of this combination of Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz types in the Senate. And so this was an issue that was, I mean, like you said, a very lopsided vote, but also brought together just such an interesting coalition that we do rarely see in the Senate. And uh, Igor, I was uh, impressed too, or surprised maybe, that the leadership on this to get it done was really Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, both of whom are long, long time friends of organized labor, uh, and yet went against organized labor in this case. Yeah, I mean, Biden himself has been proudly de declaring himself uh, a union man um, for, for decades in office. Uh, you know, he has strong relations with the labor industry. And um, he was he was trying to to broker a deal here um, with with the railroad uh, unions and their members, uh, of course, four units had rejected uh, mm -hmm. the agreement that that uh, the the offer offered by the rail companies. Uh, so we we got to this point where essentially Democrats, top Democrats, had to were forced to side with um, you know keeping the economy stable over the demands of these workers who don't get paid sick leave. They do get leave a certain amount of weeks of leave. But are not allowed to take pay, paid sick leave as you or I or you know normal regular workers would. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a big issue, and and it resonated with some Republicans like Ted Cruz and and Josh Hawley and uh, a couple other ones, Lindsey Graham as well. Um, so it, 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 their their calls did have a, some bipartisan um, uh, uh, support, but in the end, you saw Democrats side with uh side against them in order to prevent this uh economic calamity particularly at this time right this time of the year with the holidays approaching and supply yep. chain uh so important and maya the other big accomplishment was passage of the same-sex marriage act that's not the exact name of it but that's what it did um again uh an unusual strong 
coalition, bipartisan coalition, led by uh, Tammy Baldwin and um, Susan Collins. You know, I I take this in part as, or really in large part, as a recognition of the changing role that the Supreme Court has played in terms of its increased radicalization and the fears that many, not just voters, but now lawmakers have about what people's rights could look like under this mm-hmm. new judiciary. And I see this, I see the, the, the same-sex marriage act as a really huge recognition of that and sort of you know, a, a change among leaders now to actually protect the right um, uh, to to marry. I know there are a lot of provisions there that um, that could still interfere um, with same sex couples, particularly as they relate to uh, religious liberties. But I, I still do see this as a as a major step forward. And again, um, the role that the Senate is now playing, or Congress is now playing, in being sort of a check on the Supreme Court. Yeah, no, good point. I think uh, I think you're right. I think they see that um, maybe they'd better codify some things, shore up some things, right, before the court uh, goes even further in stripping civil liberties. They won't maybe admit that publicly, but that's certainly, I believe, a driving force. Uh, and now to the former president who continues uh, to make news, not all of it good news from Mar-a-Lago. Um, we've talked about um, the big dinner we talked about it last week on the roundtable with Kanye West, or Yi, as he prefers to be called, and Nick Fuentes, the outright white supremacist. Uh, as it might have been the president, former president thought the outrage was dying down until Congress came back in session this week. And many Republicans, including Mitt Romney, spoke out and said, no way we could support this. This is disgusting. Here's the former presidential candidate, Mitt Romney. It's disgusting to invite uh, people like that to meet with a former president of the United States. Um, I think there's, uh, it's been clear that there's no bottom to the degree to which President Trump will uh, degrade uh, himself and, and the nation. Igor, I'm sure you chased some of these people down to get their comments. Uh, yeah. Some of them didn't want to talk and some of them did, right? <laughs> Well, what what was unusual was that you had more people speaking out, and it wasn't just the Mitt Romney, you know, Trump critics. Uh, it was uh, Trump loyalists, people who have supported him for a long time, speaking out. Um, you know, people like Joni Ernst of Iowa saying it was a quote ridiculous meeting. John Thune, the number two Senate Republican, calling it a bad idea on every level. Um, so more and more Republicans are, are are willing now to speak out, given that he is no longer. President, and yet he is still running for president. So you, uh, you had at once at, on the one hand people criticizing him, but on the other hand, when you ask a, a simple follow up, well, do you, does this mean that you can now say you won't support him if he becomes the nominee? They freeze up as they have done for yeah. for a while now. <laughs> you, you, you saw Mitch McConnell get asked that question, and he he also uh, condemned the meeting, but did not rule out supporting him if he becomes the nominee. So, um, you know, as he runs for president again, you have sort of a, a bit of a similar situation to 2015 when you had a large field of Republican candidates jumping in uh, into the presidential race, yet nobody willing to um, really take the banner up and, and go hard at him. Um, and you saw the split field lead to his uh, winning of the presidential nomination, which we could see happen again. Well, on that line, on that point, uh, Eliza, here we go back. I don't need to beat up on Kevin McCarthy too much, but uh, he too just would not come out and condemn Donald Trump. Right? He said, in fact, that Donald Trump had condemned Nick Fuentes four different times, which is simply not true. I mean, why wouldn't McCarthy just come out and say it was wrong to have that dinner? Right. This is the thing we've watched Republicans do for years with um, the former president, because this is not the first time that Trump has done something controversial where they try to criticize the action without actually using the word Trump. Um, You know, say, I would not do that. That is a bad dinner. That's a bad idea. But then to Igor's point, they won't say if they would support him again, which is truly the real question. You know, do if you say someone's doing something disgusting, then why would you support them? McCarthy 
simply said something that was not true. Um, I think we're going to see more of this. Republicans do view Trump as weakened. I believe coming out of the midterm elections, his candidates did much worse than um, I think anyone expected a handful one. But, you know, election deniers, people had said controversial things really mostly did lose. And so the Republican Party is trying to figure out what to do. But Trump is still incredibly popular with the base. And to Igor's point, in a wide field in 2024, if it's split, there is absolutely a path for Mm. uh, the former president to become the nominee. And I think Republicans are trying to figure out how to handle that. But yes, they were critical of the dinner, but I wouldn't say they were overwhelmingly different than they had been before because we've seen this where they criticize the action but not necessarily trump himself uh, and maya if republicans hope that this goes away um they may be kidding themselves uh, kanye west appeared uh he's still out there he was on the i can't believe alex jones after the latest verdict uh on how much money he owes uh the families of uh uh, of Connecticut, uh, still has a radio show, but he was out there yesterday. Kanye West was his guest. Uh, and here is Ye um, singing the same tune. I don't, I don't like the word evil next to Nazis. I love Jewish people, but I also love Nazis. There you go. This is not going to go away, uh, Maya, as long as he's out there. I don't know what to say. I mean, other than that, we should absolutely disavow this and probably stop giving Kanye such a uh, or yay such a platform um, to to spew this kind of hatred and again Georgia Engel later on in that interview he actually <laughs> re-endorsed Herschel Walker um, which oh. does not bode well for Walker either his campaign did not recognize that or answer any questions about that um, and I mean look I think one thing that we have to also say here is the fact that there are a lot of conservative Jewish people who are really offended by the silence um, of Donald Trump and other Republicans on this. Anti-Semitism is something that you have to condemn swiftly, immediately, and very forcefully. We haven't seen that happen from really any Republican leaders, or especially the one who is the, the ostensible front runner for, for uh, nomination to the presidency in 2024. And I think that's something that they should also keep in mind here is that you have a whole constituency of people who now feel extremely alienated and frankly, likely insulted by this. Um, and the fact that, you know, he continues to have this platform, I think, and talking about yay here, it's really troubling. Right. Uh, and the fact that the former president has not condemned uh, what Kanye West or Nick Fuentes stand for is equally troubling, I might add. Uh, before we go off to your favorites uh, out and off to your favorite stories of the week, I've got to ask you something about, this is a topic I, I admit a new topic, not one that we had talked about before talking today, but it really caught my attention, which is that the president of the United States, I'd like to get each of your take on this, uh, Joe Biden has endorsed a plan to totally shake up the Democratic primary system. Iowa, we're used to those Iowa caucuses for some 50 years. Joe Biden says no longer dump Iowa. They don't represent the United States. And he's endorsing a new plan, which is probably going to happen where the first primary will be in South Carolina alone, followed a week later by Nevada and New Hampshire, followed a week later by Georgia, and followed a week later by Michigan. Uh, Eliza, this is revolutionary. It's a huge deal as someone who spent a lot of time in <laughs> Iowa before. Right. We, all, um, we all have, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's massive. I mean, of course, Joe Biden owes his presidency to the voters of South Carolina. Yep. The first three states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, he lost. He lost all of them. Um, I covered Bernie Sanders in 2020. It looked like he was going to be the nominee. And then the voters of South Carolina spoke. They picked Joe Biden. The field consolidated. And that's where we are. So you know, this is a really big deal. It's it's a pretty shocking move for a president to endorse such a shakeup like this. But it is also how who Joe Biden owes his presidency to. And it's a acknowledgement the Democratic base at the end of the day is still black voters. That's who shows up for Democrats. And that is the 
majority of the Democratic electorate in South Carolina. Now, it's interesting that um, the rest of the field, you know, we'll still see New Hampshire, we'll still mm-hmm. see Nevada, but uh, Michigan and Georgia are an acknowledgement of increasingly competitive battleground states that Democrats will need to win in order to win the presidency. So it is a more geographic diversity and more voter diversity. Um, it's a really interesting list. Here we go, Maya, back to Georgia again, right? I mean, you would think that it might have been Pennsylvania up there, right? Or Wisconsin or something. But Georgia in third, you know, in the third rank, or the, it would be the fourth state on the list. It's great. It's great news for me. <laughs> glad, to, glad to still be here. And I'll also add to Eliza's point about the diversity of this map. There's more regional diversity here. This gives the South and the Deep South a lot more of an upper hand now in deciding the way that these contests are going to go. And I think that's really, really important to note. Um, you know, Atlanta is also um, on the list to host the DNC in 2024. And even though Democrats really, um, I know we have not yet we don't know what's going to happen in the Senate runoff and um, Senator Warnock may very well be triumphant there, but he would be the only Democrat if he does win to actually win statewide this year. It's been a really rough year for Democrats in Georgia, but I think Republic Democrats still recognize nationally the role that the party now plays in that state. And I hope that this has sort of a trickle across effect to other deep South states where there is a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunity to make inroads with voters just with the proper mobilization efforts. This feels like a really important first step there uh, in, mm-hmm. in sort of recognizing the, the role that not just Black voters play, but again, that voters in the South play. And come on, Igor, you got to admit, it'll be more fun spending December in South Carolina than in Iowa, right? Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I froze my ass off. Sorry, can I say that? Yes, so many did. times. So many times in Iowa, I'm so excited uh, for this change, and also Nevada. Nevada's a, a you know a, a growing, yeah. growing influence on the West. It's good to see the West represented uh, here in, in this list, given its uh, given the state's uh, uh, rising diversity and uh, big big uh, influence of unions there. So they've really selected uh, their some of their key constituencies here. Key question is whether it happens. Some some of these states do have Republican governors. Yeah. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Nevada will have a Republican governor soon. New Hampshire does as well, and they've they've prom- they've pledged not to go along with this. So that there will be need some. Will will we'll have to be some bipartisan cooperation to make this happen. Yeah, uh, I, I have to I have to admit for political junkies. Um, uh, quick personal story on this topic. Back in 1994. I was Democratic State Chair of California, a member of the DNC. We had a meeting here in Washington, D.C. The State Chair of Delaware at the time, a man by the name of Gary Hines, introduced a motion at our meeting to take to drop the first primaries, Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, throw them out and replace them with other states that were more representative of the nation. I forget exactly which state would have been number one, but I actually from California, supported the measure. It passed. We actually dumped Iowa and New Hampshire, the Democratic National Committee. That was in the morning. We took a lunch break. We came back after lunch, and the Clinton White House sent in their... (laughs) They big-footed us. They sent in Harold Ickes (laughs) and a bunch of top Democrats from the White House, and they took another vote, and we lost the second vote. (laughs) So I just want to point out, this happened once before uh, in 1994, but we were just ahead of our time. We didn't make it then, but it looks like it's going to make it now, and I think it is great news. Oh, gosh. What a great panel today. Thank you so much, Eliza Collins, Igor Babush, and Maya King. Uh, and now one story out of all the stories we talked about and those we, even we didn't get to must have caught your attention this week and stopped you uh, in your tracks uh, your favorite story of the week. Igor, can you start us off, please? Well, my favorite story and the biggest story in the world right now, <laughs> in yes. sheer, sheer terms of viewership, is the World Cup. And uh, the U.S. is in the round of 16, the the knockout stage, 
And we play the Netherlands this Saturday morning. And I will be posted up at a bar at bright and early at uh, <laughs> 8 o'clock in the morning, probably, uh, getting ready for this game. I encourage everybody to watch. Uh, we have a great, great young team. Uh, Christian Pulisic, uh, who is, I will know, of Croatian heritage. Um, <laughs> there you go. He's our number one star. He's coming off an injury, but he'll, he, he says he'll be ready in time. So people should uh, cheer on Team USA. And I must admit, I watched the entire U.S.-Iran game. How exciting. What a great, great game. And uh, yeah. uh, Igor, maybe this will make soccer more popular, as popular as it should be in the United States, right? Yeah, let's hope. Real football, not that phony football <laughs> <laughs> that the NFL provides. How about you, Eliza? What caught your attention? Uh, I'm going to go for sort of the democracy angle in Arizona, which was one of the competitive battleground states in the midterm elections. We saw Democrats sweep um, the top four statewide positions, which is really shocking as someone who grew Mm. up in this once reliably red state. But um, one conservative county had refused to certify the results, um, which is really interesting because they very wide by wide margins voted for the Republicans, but they refused. Um, And so they had been postponing certification. Yesterday, the judge, a Doug Ducey, a Republican appointed judge, ruled it's time to certify. And so they were forced within just a couple of hours to meet again to certify the election results. And so you know, Arizona next week will be completely certified. I should say there is one statewide race that is going into an automatic recount. The Democrat leads by just like 500 votes in the whole state. So we are watching that. But I think compared to 2020, the state was the center of just such a mess of false claims of election fraud. So to move on rather quickly is Good for democracy. It was striking that that was the only case like in the entire country, right? We feared that there might have been a lot of them, but as far Pen- as I saw. Pennsylvania is oh, dealing right. with some certification. Yeah. But, yes, so that's another yeah. battleground state. Um, but, but a lot less it than is we very feared. different. We saw, yeah. yes, we saw a lot of those Republicans who had uh, echoed false claims of fraud concede really quickly once they lost, which was good to see after 2020. And Maya King, what particular story caught your attention? So the theme that I've gone with this week is uh, another another undercurrent of this strange time that we live in, online mis- and disinformation. Uh-huh. There's this great story in the New York Times this week called Vanish in the Pacific. And uh, it basically looks at these two young men who became radicalized by a conspiracy theorist online, who otherwise had lived pretty normal lives and didn't necessarily show any signs of uh, being influenced by this, who just then got on a plane, flew to Hawaii and set forth on a sailboat in 2020 um, to escape COVID restrictions. Um, Several months later, they were never heard from again. This story essentially unpacks exactly what happened um, on that months-long voyage throughout the Pacific, the themes of these conspiracies that had made them so susceptible to them, and the ways that this really damaged both of their families in really irreparable ways. Uh, Both men have now been uh, presumed dead in in the ocean somewhere, and their remains have not been able to be found. But perhaps the most haunting detail in all of this is that uh, the mother of one of the men who had disappeared has now uh, sort of seemed to become obsessed with the story herself, believing that her son is actually still alive and putting out as many um, uh, notices as she can to try to find him. So it's just a cautionary tale about the ways that online mis- and disinformation has really impacted people, but it's told very, very artfully and sort of in this way that I, could, I feel like I could read a book about this saga now. I that was a stunning story, right? Yeah, I read it and I just I just couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, thank you for bringing that to our attention. Uh, and I got to tell you, my favorite story has to do with the legal process uh, system. I guess I mean we until this week we all thought that Donald Trump filed the most lawsuits and the most frivolous lawsuits of anybody alive. It turns out that is not true. I learned this week. Um, and there is a woman, her name is Amanda Ramirez, who has filed a big lawsuit against the makers of the product Shells and Cheese. Now, I must admit I've never made this, but it is a mac and cheese 
um, ready-made microwavable mac and cheese uh, that you can buy. It's made with Velveeta, so that tells you something about how good it is. Uh, at any rate, on the packaging, it says, ready in three and a half minutes. Well, this woman discovered that that's not, it's not ready that fast because that does not include the time it takes to take the lid off the package to add water and to stir in the cheese. When you add that time, it takes at least five minutes. So she has sued for $5 million for damages because she said she was hoodwinked when they told her it would only take her three and a half minutes to get this Velveeta mac and cheese ready. Uh, I think that has to take the a prize for the most frivolous lawsuit of the year, if not forever. But I do want to point out that this lady, this woman, does live in South Florida, and she <laughs> filed her lawsuit in South Florida. <laughs> and hey, so, I, therefore, there may be some connection. I don't know. <laughs> I agree with her. Come on. It should, it, it should take what it says because, uh, you know, maybe she's a busy woman. She's got things to do. It doesn't have three minutes. How about the time to walk to the store or drive to the store, right, <laughs> to get it? So <laughs> I guess maybe in the small print they have to say, this is only the time that it's in the microwave. <laughs> right. All right, there we go. Never a, never an end of things to, uh, to, to, to talk about. With our roundtable panel, Igor Bobbish from HuffPost, Eliza Collins from the Wall Street Journal, Maya King in George in Atlanta for the New York Times. Thank you so much, panelists. Great job today. Thank you all for joining us. Now we just ask you to go out and have a great weekend and then come back and see us on Tuesday, our next roundtable, our next uh, podcast, rather, with Norm Ornstein, who is a real congressional scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And we'll get Norm's take on the new leadership in Congress and uh, the prospects for the next session of Congress starting next year. Uh, that's it for now. Again, have a great weekend. Come back and see us on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.